Episode 182, everybody, with Mike Silvestrini, the Enviro Capitalist, co-founder and managing partner at Energia. Energia is a renewable energy retail investment platform. We get into it uh, later in the episode. We talk a lot about solar energy, uh, planet, climate change, the effects of all these things, and um, really learned a lot about this. I have to listen to this episode several times because Mike dropped a lot of scientific lingo and knowledge on us and uh, this is the type of stuff that I have to go back and and listen to several times uh, because I don't get it. I don't understand it like he does but uh, that's why we brought him on and appreciate all the insight. Check him out, energia.com. You can invest with Mike and his team um, at energia.com and again we linked him up in the show notes. With that said everybody, uh, continue to rate, review, follow, like, comment, share. Uh, It's not going unnoticed. Trust me, the feedback that I'm continuing to get and seeing the podcast grow is phenomenal, and that's because of you, the listener. And again, I greatly appreciate it. With that said, here he comes. Please welcome the one and only Mike Silvestrini. The Optimal Life. So tell us exactly what is an enviro-capitalist? What is that? (laughs) You know, it's sort of a cheeky way that I describe myself because I find like that I I sort of hurdle two different common frames of mind. On one hand, um, I'm very fiscally conservative. I really believe in uh, the the tools of capitalism and uh, the way production is arranged when in an efficient economy. And uh, but I'm also a staunch environmentalist, and I think that in in our culture. Uh, we tend to separate those two in two different buckets. You're kind of either conservative all the way through or you're liberal all the way through. And um, I, I pick and choose the things that I think are most important. And uh, for me, you know, the environment is, is a critical issue. Um, and it does tend to get uh, bucketed, I think, with a, a host of other liberal issues, uh, which I may or may not agree with. Um, but so I, I'm specifically focused on um, the way that capitalism can be harnessed to save the planet. And I think those are the only truly sustainable methods that we have in our toolbox uh, for the incredible tall order ahead of us with regards to the environment. Yeah, absolutely. It's a weird clash for sure. And it's probably a, a delicate balance that you're always trying to uh, maintain. So it's tough. It's tough. Yeah, a lot of people uh, kind of they hear environmentalism and they run in the opposite direction because they're used to associating that with certain other unrelated policies and and, and uh, sort of ways of thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and similarly, you know, when I mentioned that I'm you know more or less a libertarian in in, in my free market appreciation, uh, that sends the op- the other group running the opposite direction. <laughs> but the reality is is that there's sort of a, a crossover where you know, the tools of capitalism can be harnessed for environmental purposes. And I, I don't know of any political party that's really spouting that right now. So, uh, I, you know, it, it's a small group, but, um, you know, that's, that's what I believe, at least. So you're involved, you've been involved in this renewable energy market for quite some time. Take us back. What was Green Skies exactly? And uh, tell us a little bit about that story. Yeah, so in 2007, um was an interesting year uh, for the world. You know, my little brother was actually fighting in Iraq at that time, and there was a little bit of a of an uh, of an uptick in in violence in that conflict. And uh, you know, people had kind of forgotten it was going on, and all of a sudden, 
you know, we had some major battles, uh, which was you know, right in everyone's face. Um, oil had crossed over 100 bucks a barrel, and the UN uh, panel on climate change won the Nobel Prize for proving beyond the shadow of a doubt that uh, mankind was impacting the climate in, uh, in undesirable ways. And so at the same time, solar energy was uh, not really a, a widespread technology by any means. It was very nascent. Uh, there were some California uh, solar companies, the first like true companies dedicated exclusively to this technology were starting to evolve. Um, over in Europe, there were a few, especially in Germany and in Spain, there was quite a bit of solar going in. But on the East Coast of the United States, where I'm from, there was nothing to speak of that could even resemble an industry. And uh, I just felt that that was um, something that had to happen. We're going to need to push in this direction towards renewable energy for um, national security, uh, for economic reasons, and for environmental reasons. And uh, I was in grad school and uh, dating a girl from a very entrepreneurial family. Uh, now she's my wife and they are my true family. Um, and, uh, you know, we just got to talking about this stuff and decided to make an entrepreneurial run at an early stage solar energy company. And we called it Green Skies. And we started looking for ways to install large quantities of solar panels. Um, and uh, we started doing it with a couple small businesses. We never did really residential solar. That was never uh, the scale that we preferred. We liked the sophistication of corporate customers and their capitalization of corporate customers to be able to do something impactful. And uh, we really uh, started growing much more rapidly when we got uh, customer contracts with the likes of Walmart and Target, especially in around 2010. And those guys wanted solar all over the place. And we were installing solar for Walmarts and Targets all around the country. And then using that to learn new markets and new states and figure out how to get to the colleges and universities and how to put solar panels on the landfills, the capped landfills of various communities and uh, extended our reach further uh, up and down the value chain uh, mm. until um, you know, we sold the business, my partners and I, uh, in 2017. What exactly it was, a, it was is, a fun run. What exactly is solar energy, Mike? Yeah, solar energy is um, using um, the photovoltaic properties of silicon to create electricity uh, where unlike combustible forms of fuel uh, solar panels have a dangling electron in the outer shell of silicon and when a photon hits it it creates current and when we assemble lots of silicon uh, in series next to one another we can collect that current and use it to power our electrical devices so it's an alternative to burning fuels um, and it's a technology that causes no carbon to release in the atmosphere. Uh, and it is a technology that is abundantly available in, in terms of you know, the amount of sunlight that hits planet Earth. But to capture it and to turn it into useful energy requires a lot of infrastructure. So we are sort of in the middle of the infrastructure business, which is traditionally power plants and roads and bridges. Uh, well, renewable energy is part of a modern infrastructure. So what happens, for example, right now I'm sitting here, I've got, an, I've got the computer, I've got the electronics, the microphone, all these things buzzing through these walls here in my basement, and, mm -hmm. uh, and lights are on throughout the house, 
etc. What exactly is happening with all that type of energy? So think of the grid as like a flowing river. And there's a, a river of electrons that flow. And every device that is currently buzzing in your house is connected by copper wire to a power plant directly because uh, you have to have a closed circuit. And the power plant is issuing new um, electrons, if you will, to simplify it. And that's adding to the river. And then each device that you use is pulling from that river to for some sort of work to be accomplished, whether you know a light being lit. Um, so it's this constant ebb and flow of uh, power plants introducing new electricity to the river, which flows all throughout our society and every one of our houses and buildings um, where it is then used. And we need to create a balance so that, that river is always flowing at a certain rate, and uh, it, which is measured in hertz. So. Uh, we are of the, on the generator side of the equation. So solar power plant developers like us and, and investors are focused on adding new productive capacity to the grid, specifically the kind that doesn't use any uh, carbon dioxide in its exhaust mm-hmm. um, so that we can gradually convert the grid from traditional sources to, to renewable sources. Does that answer your question? Well, yeah. Again, I'm going to feel like a big dummy during our conversation today because this stuff is right. this stuff is super uh, um, co- complex, and I don't understand quite a bit of it. Which is really the reason I wanted to bring you on. Cool. Um, yeah. So, because I love learning about this stuff, where I feel like a complete dope. But uh, th- that's kind of my favorite. Those are my favorite conversations. So, so the, the energy that's being used right now in our homes. What's happening in the atmosphere? What, what, is, what is the effect? Yeah, so in order to get the power that we need to run our society, um, we need lots of power plants, gigawatts and gigawatts. These are massive amounts uh, of, of power being produced, uh, terawatts even in the United States alone. So huge amounts of electricity. And the way that we do that is we basically uh, boil water and to create steam and the steam turns a turbine. And we can boil that water by burning gas, like a gas stove at a mega scale. We can boil water by burning coal. We can boil water by burning oil. We can boil water through a nuclear uh, process. Um, That's the most conventional form of a power plant is a turbine that spins from steam created by some sort of combustion process mm-hmm. or a nuclear process. So it's very different, uh, categorically different to look at wind or hydropower. Like hydropower turns the turbine because the water is passing through it and it uses that kinetic energy to turn the turbine directly. There's no steam. Um, wind is similar. You know, we use, we put some blades on a turbine so that the wind causes it to turn. Uh, but ultimately still a generator in there. There really is no generator um, in uh, a solar energy system. Uh, the electricity is instead produced from that photovoltaic process. And we, but either way, uh, at the end of a generator's uh, you know, work in motion, the output of that is kilowatts of electricity or megawatts, depending on your size and scale. And that is what gets thrown onto the grid where it can then be uh, connected to 
our society and used. Mm-hmm. Does this stuff have a, a a direct impact on climate, in your opinion? No, there's there's no question about it because when we burn all these fuels to create steam to turn the turbines to turn on our stuff, um, it has exhaust, and that exhaust is uh, is it's gas and there's a gaseous content of our atmosphere and we can measure it and we can look at what comprises the gaseous content of our atmosphere uh and when greenhouse gases like methane and carbon dioxide start to increase the proportion of the gaseous content of the atmosphere it has effects on temperature uh, of the earth which has an effect uh, on ecology in the way because you know nature is such a delicate ballet uh, that if you introduce uh, changes to it it can really cause some havoc and you see it you know uh, every single day right now we're already experiencing the impacts of climate change and uh, I'm also um, a board member of a nonprofit organization in Kenya and our mission there is to it started off as an anti-poaching organizations called Big Life and we have 400 rangers who basically protect uh, a valuable ecosystem that's filled with elephants and giraffes and cheetahs and leopards and um, important fauna and we can see firsthand just how delicate the rain systems are uh, and their impact on uh, the way grass grows and the migratory patterns of various migrating animals and just how delicate that balance really is and uh, I'm I'm fairly convinced that um, if we adjust the the temperature uh, we are adjusting our ecology and uh, that's a dangerous game to play because you know the human impact on the earth is is so tremendous right now that uh, it's particularly fragile the ecosystems are particularly fragile what's the worst case scenario Uh, looking into your crystal ball let's say a hundred years from now two hundred years from now I mean, what could potentially happen if we don't get the energy under control and the climate under control? What, what, what could the planet look like several hundred years from now? Well, first, it's really important to note that it's not what could happen, it's what will happen, and there's no, poss- there's no scenario where this gets under control. It's already out of control, and we're steaming forward uh, as if nothing's happening. Um, so there's, there are no scenarios where you know you see you hear about the Paris Agreement and the UN aggregating and talking about one and a half degrees, you know we've done the math. There's no chance that that's gonna we're gonna prevent one and a half degrees, even two degrees. There's really no chance. Um, just the deployment of carbon-free technologies is too slow to My- possibly. Um, you know, uh, prevent systemic changes when you uh, say, as a result of climate change. Mike, let me interrupt you real quick. When you say one and a half or two degrees, you're talking about what, like an, an average temperature increase in society? What is yeah, that? it's a Celsius in Celsius. Uh, one of the ways that we, that scientists have simplified um, and measured climate change is to denominate it in degrees above pre-industrial levels Celsius. So mm-hmm. it's it's just a way uh, of expressing, you know, what we're trying to prevent. It's a way to put a benchmark on things. But at the end of the day, um, you know, release, continuing to release greenhouse gases is going to warm the planet. That's what really matters. And it's happening at breakneck speed. 
and uh, there is uh, no plan in place to slow it down or prevent it that has enough that's that's supported by enough um, of civilization to have a meaningful impact so we're going to experience uh, our, our I have a couple young kids they're going to live in a world that has fewer resources where um, oceans are acidified uh, at a higher level than they are today which will shrink uh, the, uh, the population of aquatic life mm. and that's an important part of a food source for us it's also um, you know you're gonna see uh, lots of changes that our children will experience uh, that will have economic impacts you know insurance is going to have to rework itself when you have uh, hundred year storms every year um, the way that we've been planning for that to and planning to rebuild that or pay for that that all needs to be reworked so there's a I could go on and on about different um, impacts but ultimately that is going to be the world in which um, you know our, the next generations live in and I think we will you know I'm an optimist I really believe that uh, after um, a really difficult century or so um, we will get a handle on this we will decarbonize our behaviors people will start taking this seriously as second nature you're going to be born into a more sustainable lifestyle because it's just going to be a necessary part of cultural survival mm. um, and when that happens you know humans are extremely bright and we'll find ways of of recreating ecology i hope so you know while the next couple generations are going to have to deal with this problem uh, financially and intellectually and professionally i think uh huge i think we're underestimating how many um jobs of the future are going to be specifically focused on sustainable professions yeah. um but when we get on the other side of that you know maybe we can build something that's really balanced and because we have the the technology and the awareness and the science to really uh create a, a very balanced world where we can live here safely and happily and actually have a, a large degree of control over our storm systems and our climate and our rain and our access to clean water. So we will eventually harness that knowledge, do but you, uh, it's just going to take a little time. Do you foresee the potential for a society to potentially run on all like solar and, and these types of energies that you're talking about? For example, not I guess what I'm saying is not being reliant on the illuminating company. Is that possible? It's, it has to happen. It's not. It, it's not even. It's. It has to be possible, because we can't continue to dump carbon dioxide into our atmosphere. So that's you know the first part of the answer. So you foresee you, for, you foresee the aluminum possible, and doesn't even cost that much. Uh, these are problems that we can fix. You for, but it's about getting the will to do it. So you foresee the, like a, the illuminating company not being around one day and and using a completely different form of energy. Well, when you say illuminating company, I assume you mean the local utility? Sure. And no, they're absolutely pivotal to piece of infrastructure. Okay. So you, there's two different sides of the power generation business. You have the generators, which are the power plants, and then you have the companies that distribute that power and get it to the to society. And so the your local utility company is going to manage the wires that you see running across fields and down your street. We need all those wires in place. We they're do. going to continue okay. to do that, and they're going to continue to charge a fee for the availability of that electricity. That's their role. What's going to change is the generator side, where 
the source of those kilowatts come, excuse me, come from is going to change from traditional um, uh, fossil fuel sources towards cleaner sources like nuclear, solar, wind, hydro. Those types of power sources need to become uh, the entirety of our generation mix. What is, what is somebody that, that has the opposing viewpoint? Are there people that are, are not behind solar power? And if so, what is their, what is their rationale? Well, I mean, honestly, um, it depends on how familiar one is with the current status of global ecology. Uh, I think people who are, um, you know, in a scientific persuasion or have a relationship with nature and are following, um, you know, biodiversity and are, are have any real form of reference for where we're at versus where the planet has been in the past it becomes very obvious that the encroachment of mankind onto the earth is puts a tremendous pressure on on our ecology. Uh, we have a relentless pursuit for new resources. How that can possibly be sustainable, um, you know, I, I would just be curious to feel to ask somebody who doesn't quote unquote believe in solar energy, you know, how they would how would we continue to produce the resources needed by a uh, $7 billion population as everybody modernizes and gets iPhones? Like, where is the, all that going to come from? Mm. Where is the food going to come from? Um, most importantly, where is the fresh water going to come from? Because uh, we're putting so much pressure on these systems that modernity uh, is, is not, the planet's not big enough uh, to support modernity at that scale. Wow, that's um, and yeah, that's measurable stuff. That's me- my father sent me an article a couple days ago. Um, it was sort of a, a a disbeliever that the that the coral reefs are in jeopardy, right? And I read it, and I knew it was coming from sort of a it was coming from an ultra right source. Um, I said, you know, well, let me get a good answer from my dad. Uh, because you know, he's asking a question. It's a reasonable question. You know, the article was stating that coral reefs are doing great. I know that they're not. Um, but let me at least get something empirical here. So, uh, How do you, you know? know? How do you know that they're yep. not, Mike? Go ahead. How do you know that they're not doing great before you move on? Right. Well, so I, I went back. and I know that they're not doing great because, you know, if you've ever been diving in the Great Barrier Reef or in... Uh, Indonesia or in the Caribbean where I've had the great opportunities to do those types of things you see the bleaching and you talk to people and you and you hear stories about how it once was versus how it is now and you know from personal experiences um, but that's not empirical enough right that's not a good answer oh I went diving in the Caribbean and it was bleached so right. corals are in bad shape right. certainly that's not an acceptable response but what is an acceptable response is that, um, you know, so I went through this process of just trying to learn about it so I can explain it uh, back to somebody who's skeptical. And uh, there's a calcification. So, like, coral reefs are creating new calcification as their sort of massive exoskeleton grows and expands. This whole thing is like a big piece of calcium. And it creates more calcium to expand its footprint. And then simultaneously, it's dissolving as well. You know, old calcium is getting hit by a storm or um, it's this increased acidification 
or increased temperature of the water is having a negative impact on that coral reef system, which is shrinking it. So it's growing and it's shrinking all at the same time. And what scientists can do is measure the calcification rate. And if you have a positive number in the calcification rate, coral reefs are growing. And if you have a negative number in the calcification rate, coral reefs are shrinking. Right now, coral reefs are growing. It's a positive calcification rate. But the rate at which it's growing is shrinking by about four to five percent per year. Mm. So it's slowing down until it crosses that threshold, which is calculable based off of our estimates of climate change. So what we can say is we know for certain that increased gas, uh, greenhouse gases increases acidification of water. So let's throw that metric in this. How, where is that trending? And we have to make some, some guesses about the rate at which that will continue, but we can do that and we can be very responsible. Uh, you know, nobody's here is trying to make stuff up. We're trying to ascertain uh, most likely scenarios given trends that are measurable. Sure. And we're seeing that there's an increase uh, in acidification of water. And there's also an increase in temperature. Uh, coral reefs bleach certain times. When, when the water gets really hot, they bleach. And that's devastating to a coral. And we used, we always, uh, you know, for hundreds of years, there have been periods or years where, you know, El Nino events where you have a lot of bleaching all in one year. The problem is those years are happening more and more frequently and it doesn't give the coral enough time to recover. So bleaching is happening at much faster rates, unrecoverable rates versus the natural ecology of the, of the reefs. So here is a, just an example of, you know, the lengths it takes to kind of explain something that is just like this kind of silly two paragraph article that dispels that, you know, reefs are in jeopardy. Well, the reality is that's not true. Um, it is in jeopardy because it can't recalcify fast enough. And we're hitting a point where um, the degradation of the reef systems um, on top of the bleaching will accelerate. So by the time 2050 rolls around, um, every reef in the world is retracting. And by 2100, there are no reefs. Which based off what? of a series of variables, which we can explain transparently. So, like, sure. you know, nobody wants to hear that answer. Yeah. And uh, they'd rather just read the article and say, oh, it's a bunch of BS. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you on that. So what happens if by 2100, if there were no reefs, what's, what's the effect of that in the ocean? Well, reefs are the nurseries of aquatic wildlife. So it's fisheries. The where fish go to have babies is in the reefs. And then they, when they get of a size that they're safe for open waters, they go out into the open waters. So if you take away the nurseries of uh, aquatic life, um, aquatic life isn't going to have a place to procreate safely. Mm. And that will have a negative impact on the population of aquatic life. But everything's so interconnected that if you start screwing around with the nurseries, it'll have unintended consequences as well, which we can't even predict right now. But you know how many other species are related to this? There's probably grasses. You know, there, there's all sorts of ancillary impact events from, the, from these singular changes. And uh, wow. they're difficult to predict. Uh, they're underfunded, uh, and you know the science is is imperfect. So we just we just ignore it entirely. But uh, there will be you know grave consequences for having a dead ocean. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it's not it's not a good thing. Or, or plus, no ocean, right? You know, like how could that not? How is that a good thing? You know, what's the alternative? What's the argument for? Let's just not care. You know, uh, 
at least there's like saying, wait a second, maybe we should take a look at this. Maybe we can transition to a technology that's readily available and increase the probability that we of the longevity of our oceans. I don't see that as an idea that needs all that much defending, but certainly uh, <laughs> there are those amongst us who yeah. really vehemently disagree. That's scary stuff. So you, you've you've made a career out of, like you said, you're a capitalist. You've made a career out of um, having a positive impact on society, the environment, etc. So you you had your exit in 2017. What happened? You you, you get a little bit bored after a while, just sitting around every day, Mike. Oh, not at all. I didn't sit around, but we did a lot of traveling yeah. and met with a lot of different uh, environmental and renewable energy groups around the world and tried to listen to what's slowing them down in what what are the types of roadblocks that are preventing them from deploying more uh, carbon-free energy systems. And uh, my job is to come to take this environmental outcome and turn it into a product that we can sell. And um, you know, in, the, in the older days, I used to productize solar power plants themselves. I would sell them to Walmart because Walmart wanted to save money. That's what Walmart does. So solar energy saved them money. So we were able to create a lower carbon, you know, pieces of a lower carbon infrastructure by selling a cost savings product to this juggernaut customer. Well, now uh, the product that my new business is focused on is called Energia is about looking at renewable energy as an investment product. And this thing, you know, renewable energy is a great investment. It has a solid return on investment. It's a real asset. Dividends come out monthly for for decades in a row. Uh, It's not unlike real estate um, in its mechanics, but unlike real estate, it's growing really quickly and there's a lot of opportunity uh, to pursue. So yeah, let's, so we let's, think yeah. that it's a great product. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about Energia. This is fascinating. I was looking at your website. You have opportunities now for the everyday average investor, regardless of their background, regardless of their income. It, it looks like to me they can go on and they could start investing in some of your projects. So let's is that a, is that an accurate statement? Yeah, that's that's okay. that's exactly what we're trying to to explain on that homepage. So I'm yeah. glad that uh, that's visible to you. Yes. So, talk a little bit more. Let's let's dive into. The, I want to hear a little bit more about this business and how it works. So, you have sure. m- multiple projects out there. You say that these are these are good investments. How, what what is the money being used for? And I don't know. Just elaborate a little bit more about the business. Yeah. So, first off, is absolute transparency. We do believe they're good investments. I've done very well in solar energy, as have many other investors. You know, there's a reason why Goldman Sachs bought my first 450 solar projects. It's not because, you know, Goldman Sachs doesn't make lousy investment decisions. Mm. Uh, And these are great investment products. And we believe, and we will bend over backwards illustrating why in documents with the SEC that we file, in memos on reports of the projects, the types of contracts they sign. So all the due diligence is there for investors to make their own decision. But um, at the end of the day, uh, look at, you know, I started thinking a little bit about Coinbase and how interesting it was to watch that. They took an asset class, in this case, cryptocurrency, that was very difficult for people to access. You know, if you remember before, you know, the advent of some of these websites like Coinbase, you had to have like a special hard drive to like cold storage, yeah, to hold Bitcoin and yeah. stuff. Yeah. Well, who the heck's going to do that? Um, only a very, very small group of people 
would pursue that asset class with those types of requirements. But then they made it really simple. They said, look, all you need to do is download this app and then you can throw a couple bucks in, it takes about five minutes and voila, you own Bitcoin. And what happened was it ushered almost a trillion dollars into this new asset class. I said, that's really powerful stuff. They, number one, they relied on investments, not only from institutional investors, but from individual investors, which about 20% of all investing is not Goldman Sachs. It is you and I, you know, picking up an app or buying a stock on E-Trade or whatever it is. It's personal level decisions. It's a huge quantum of capital that we need to activate into renewable energy. And just like Coinbase activated that capital for cryptocurrency, Energy is trying to activate that capital for renewable energy. So that if you pick up your phone uh, and you look at your apps, you have your Coinbase app and you have your Robinhood app and you have your Energia app. And they represent different asset classes. And as investors take more and more control over their investing decisions, I think people are getting away from just you know mutual fund after mutual fund and starting to take make individual decisions um, with their retirement planning and their capital and, and their cash invested. And uh, we hope that they consider renewable energy as an option for their portfolio. It's, it's very complementary to a portfolio of stocks. Mm. Um, stocks have certain types of volatility uh, that are incongruent with the volatility that you have in renewable energy plants. Renewable energy plants aren't gonna have uh, a quarter where they multiply their value by 4x. It's not gonna happen. <laughs> right. It's very steady stuff. It makes power and it sells that power under long-term contract. It's kind of like a tortoise and the hare. Uh, and the tortoise is renewable energy. It's slow, consistent growth. That's based off real assets and contracts. But how, so and how, you, yeah. how exactly do these renewable energy projects make their money? So before we even start the construction of a new power plant, we pre-sell the electricity for usually 20 years. So we already have a customer who's gonna buy 100% of the power for a 20 year period. And then we go and we figure out how much the project's gonna to cost to build. And we look at the long-term revenue stream from the contract from the sale of energy versus the cost of the project. And that creates a return on investment. And we look at it and we say, well, what are the risks? And we try to de-risk it as best we can and then ultimately make a decision as to whether or not this is a good investment. And um, you know, we invest in probably one out of every 20 or 30 projects that we see. And when we see a good one, um, we will go ahead and approve that project for investment. Mm -hmm. And then we will uh, either invest in it ourselves as investors, or we will uh, summon capital from individuals. Uh, or sometimes we also do business with large institutions still, like publicly listed funds and um, you know, private equity groups. But our real goal is to not continue to tap the private equity and the sophisticated banking community, but instead to activate the retail investment community for this. Because uh, climate change is gonna take an effort from everybody. And without a tool like Energia, we're just not exactly sure how people are supposed to participate. Uh, it's a very complex asset class. Uh, most people have no idea where to start to, start, uh, to get involved with climate mitigating technology and we're making it as simple as Coinbase did for, for crypto. Oh, that's beautiful. So is there, a, is there like a ceiling? Is there a cap on these projects? I'm looking at your community solar in Brazil on your homepage. 
and yeah. you can invest in this opportunity now. We believe it, uh, in community solar, you say, is the best policy to rapidly expand low carbon distributed power systems. Um, mm-hmm. So my question for you is, is talk, I want you to talk a little bit about like this specific opportunity, how people can get involved, and is there, a, is there like a, a max where you stop taking the people's money or is, there, is it never ending? It's really never, it's, they're open-ended funds. Open-ended, yeah. Um, so we have uh, right now in there, we, had, we started off with four projects in that portfolio. Um, and we said, all right, let's offer this up to the retail investment community and see how much of it they, they can afford. You know, what's the app? They have to match the appetite from our investment community to the project inventory. And, you know, the, the appetite from the investment community, because we're you know, early stages and our marketing budget isn't huge. So, you know, we were able to raise enough money to build one of the projects. Uh, so we built the one project. Now I have all this extra inventory. So I took those extra three projects and I sold them, which made our investors a great return on investment. And now we're building our second project in that portfolio. Now this whole time I've had about 80 projects in Brazil. Uh, I would have been very happy for our retail investment community to in, to own them all. But I recognize that the, it's going to take time for the retail community to catch up to this product and to spread the word about it. So we also, you know, when we had too many projects for our retail community, um, that's when we go and use our old resources of institutional capital. We went and raised 63 million bucks from one guy and about 30 million bucks from another professional investor. And we mocked up all that excess inventory. Mm. But again, our goal would be for that entire thing down the road to be financed by tens of thousands of individuals who are now including in their retirement plan. And they're and it works the same way. Almost, uh, are they? Do they have to hold on to this uh, investment? Can they liquidate it at any time? How does that work? So you get a dividend every month. Um, so that's the beginning of liquidity. Um, and then after three year holding period, you can sell your your position in in the project. Got it. So we it's a real asset. And part of this, you know, I just had this big debate with a friend of mine who actually works at Goldman because normally. Uh, we consider liquid investments, um, you pay a premium to have the immediate ability to sell, right? It's, it's, that's one of the reasons why our returns are higher is because they're relative illiquidity. You have to hold on to it for a certain amount of time. Sure. sure. And my, my whole argument is I think that's, you know, we should be getting the premium for illiquidity because <laughs> really where people, where small investors really hurt themselves is by exiting positions prematurely Um, You know, if you give somebody access to exit and then the wind blows in the wrong direction, a lot of them will. And professional investors know that that's not the right way to do this. Um, So I think that illiquidity is actually a benefit to to our investors as we ask them to hang tight and let's go through this process and compound your returns. The best way to create wealth is to have a really uh, high credibility of long-term dividends and to take those dividends and reinvest it. So every month when we issue dividends, about 80% of our investors take those dividends and buy more renewable energy with it. Sure. And you keep doing that until you compound your yield. And then when you're ready to take your foot off the pedal, you coast off those dividends. And uh, that hopefully will be a significant supply of cash flow for years to come um, when you don't want to work as much anymore. No, that's fantastic. Well, this is very interesting stuff. I mean, uh, I, I definitely will be looking into this further. 
Um, I'm fascinated by by this as an asset that, that you call it and an investment vehicle and it seems very interesting what you're doing and of course it's benefiting society it's benefiting our world it's benefiting our planet these are these are you're, you're investing in the future of of the planet so um, you know that's that's very exciting to me thanks for your interest man I really appreciate it and uh, the idea was to make a great product and we think that this is a great investment product. Even if we were buying, you know, I don't know, uh, plastic cups, it would still be a good investment. But the fact that we're not buying plastic cups and that this good investment sits on top of uh, an environmentally responsible initiative is uh, just double benefits. Absolutely, absolutely. People want to find you online. Where's the best way, best place to go? Energia.com, E-N-E-R-G-E-A.com. And hopefully Beautiful. if we've done a good job, uh, the rest will be explained there. Absolutely. And we'll link you up in the show notes. Check them out, Energia.com, Mike Silvestrini. Hey, man, appreciate you. Uh, good to connect with you, and we'll stay in touch. Uh, fantastic. Thanks for having me on the show. Appreciate it.